Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. All right. Excuse me, not wearing a mask. I am more than six feet away, and I have the superpower of having had COVID. It's a weird feeling going months and months of walking around the grocery store and having your mask on, and you know, someone coughs while they're reaching for the potatoes next to you, and you look, and whoa, and then you're in line, and the lady behind you sneezes, and you look, you know, and you walk out to your car like, maybe I escaped without catching it, and then you get it, and you're assured at this point, scientifically, which is sure to change, uh, three months of at least immunity. And it's a great feeling. I'm using it, you know? I'm walking around everywhere. Just uh, probably will get the flu now, but it's nice to uh, have come out of that. And for those of you wondering why I am preaching this morning, uh, I just texted Matthew. When we were here last week, I was listening to Avery deal wonderfully with a very difficult passage, and I thought, boy, I, I remember going through that passage, and it wasn't the most fun, but it was edifying still and a lot to learn about sin. And then I was reading on, and I said, man, I love the story of Noah. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the scriptures. And when I left, I just texted Matthew, and I said, hey, man, if you need, I know he had some elder stuff going on this weekend, lots to do. I said, if you need, I will gladly preach next Sunday. I kind of forgot there were two services when I offered, but I didn't take my offer back, uh, and so he, he let me. I was surprised. He said, sure, and so here I am in the story of Noah from Genesis 6 through 9, and so I want to give you... Um, like a, a, an overview of what I would like to accomplish in this story today and uh, a couple of things that I'd like for us to evaluate knowing that next week, uh, according to the original plan to go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Matthew will probably be in some of the text that we're going to cover in this sermon. There could be 20 plus sermons from the story of Noah. We could stay here for a long time and evaluate so many key theological issues, so many verses that might cause trouble for us in understanding, so many things we could learn about the Lord from this story. 
and there's a lot that Matthew will dive into next week, I believe, when it comes to God's covenant with Noah, when it comes to the promises that he makes, when it comes to the curse that comes at the end. But what I want to do, what I did when I first traveled through Genesis on my own, is cover the story of Noah as if we were looking at the entire narrative in a chunk from Genesis. And Genesis is broken up into these sections very clearly for us. And I want to evaluate it asking, asking and hopefully answering the question, why is this story here? Why do we have this story? Certainly there are a lot of things that took place in the beginnings of time, in the beginnings of humanity that we're not told. There are things that we don't know. Avery had a few of those questions from his sermon last week. How did these get here? How did this, how do we arrive at this moment? This is a story that the Lord has chosen to include for us, for our sanctification. And I want us to, to see why. And that requires going through the entirety of the story. And it gets a little bit wordy, so you have to bear with me. I do want to read through every verse from uh, the middle of 6 through 9. But we'll break it up and we'll go along and uh, discuss. And hopefully the Lord will reveal some things to us as we go. One other request I have for us. It's a very familiar story. Probably the first story most of us learned about the Bible some point, at least in the first five. Larry commented that there are lots of animals on the rug, and it's called the Noah rug, the ark rug, uh, the story. Yeah, something. But, you know, we know this story. We, we at least know a part of this story from young, young childhood. It's painted on our nursery walls. Although th there's an ark, and there are the animals that made it, but we don't always paint the animals that didn't, or humanity, because that wouldn't serve well on a nursery wall, right? There's the ark, and there's a few animals, and there's Noah, and then there's a giraffe head going out, because he couldn't fit, so he had to stick his head out the window. We don't normally have the, the actual events, because that would be scary for children. And it's become sort of this story. I heard it preached several times as a child, and I'm not saying that those sermons were bad, but I think that there's an extra part to this story that we're prone to miss. I want us to hear the story of Noah today as if we had never heard it. What I want us to do is imagine that someone sits us down and we have no preconceived notion about the scriptures. We don't have an understanding of God's grand narrative and we are just going through this book of Genesis and we get to this guy named Noah. Because it's very interesting what we're prone to think if you think of it that way. See, we have the fortune and sometimes the disfortune of knowing the end. We know what's going to happen. We know the stories. We're familiar with them. So we're just like, yeah, yeah, sure, Noah. The flood, this, that. But I want to read through it with you as if we don't know it. As if what we know up until now is from creation to where Avery ended last week, and that is that creation was good and sin has absolutely wrecked everything. God has regretted, he has grieved every intention of man's heart all the time, is always continually on evil. He's going to blot out mankind. In verse 8 from last week's passage, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a change here. We're going to start in verse 9, which is a new section in the book of Genesis. New sections in Genesis are often introduced by these are the generations of, and it's going to tell you sort of the story of this person's life, and then it will start in the next section with a similar phrase. So these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, 
blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. That's a massive statement. This is not often said of people in the scriptures. Blameless, righteous, and he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And he says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. And through them, behold, I will destroy them with the earth, or along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. The height, 30 cubits. That's Hebrew for very big. Make a roof over the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door inside the ark. Make it with a lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is, a breath of the, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You, your, 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 your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. you shall, they shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing according to its kind. One verse I would like to remove. Two of every sort shall come in, uh, to you to keep them alive. Also with you, every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is a really interesting change in the story of Genesis. Up until this point, God has given people commands and they have not done what he has commanded them. Adam and Eve are in the garden. He gives them this command. They break the command. The fall happens. And from then, then until now, it has been destruction. Sin has ramped up all the time until we get to the point of this flood where God makes this decision that is no doubt difficult. But there's this one guy who's blameless, who is walking with God like Adam did. And he's doing everything that God commands. And weird things. Like, this is not like God saying, hey, I need you to read your Bible every day. You need to make a boat that's huge. <laughs> and all the animals are coming to it. This is big-time obedience here, and he does it. What a turning point. If you're reading this for the first time, and all you know is Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them this curse that they deserved, and, but there was also this promise that through Eve's seed, the serpent was going to be crushed. And then we've just had this genealogy that showed us through Eve's seed, we get to this guy named Noah, and he's now blameless, and God is favoring him, and he is obedient. Could this be how God solves the problem? Could this be the solution to the fall? Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all the clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds from the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. This is God showing mercy preemptively for Noah and his family, giving them something to sacrifice in the future, which is a bit of a hint for what's going to happen. For in seven days... <clears throat> You'll see this repeated. Seven days. I will send rain on the earth 
40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And again, it says, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. There's a theme here. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons, his wife, his sons' wives with him went to the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that were not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went to the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the floods came upon the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the, win- and the windows of the heavens were open, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, all the livestock according to their kinds. How amazing is that? I, I shared this morning, I have a very difficult time getting twenty dogs back into their kennels. All the animals in the ark with Noah in obedience, just as God said it. They went to the ark with Noah, two and two, all flesh, in verse 15, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased, and it bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And all mankind. And it's easy to skip over that. All mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, and Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Man, what a tough, tough story. Tough ending, it seems, for so many. What a tough result of sin. And I think we're tempted to pass over this and like ignore what's going on. And I think often we're tempted to minim- minimize sin in our lives and the problem of sin, which we saw so clearly through the text that Avery preached last week. It is a big deal and such an offense to God. And we're tempted to, I think, see this. And at least those who don't understand sin correctly, those who would look upon Christianity unfavorably and think that God is mean and unjust would see this and say, look how, how awful that is because we don't understand. Not only did everyone on earth deserve this, so do we. This is what sin deserves. This is the result of the fall We shouldn't be surprised at all that God did what people deserve, that they got the punishment that was coming to them. We should be surprised that this isn't the case for anyone, that he even let Noah on the ark at all. That is what should surprise us. Even still, you get to this point in the story of Genesis, and man, what a weird twist, and we've gotten here, and we've got this guy that's found favor, And don't miss it, the situation now is that the earth is covered in water. There's no form, water, chaos, life has been blotted out, and you have this ark floating. And there's a turning point in the story here in chapter 8. 
things begin to go the opposite way. And I don't want us to miss. I want you to remember Genesis 1, like you don't know the rest of the story, how God created all things, and we're going to watch what he does here. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth. And the water subsided. Don't miss this. The wind that blows. This is the breath of God. This is the language used in the Old Testament for the Holy Spirit. God breathes onto the earth and the water starts to depart and the land comes up. It says, The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were stained and the waters receded from the earth continuously. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now he is separating water from dry land. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. She returned to him in the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited, how long? Seven days. And again he sent forth the dove of the ark. And, she, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So now we have waters and land separated and plants on the earth. So Noah knew the waters had subsided. He waited another seven days, sent forth the dove, and she did not return. So now, birds, don't miss what's going on here. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month of the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go from the ark. You and your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of the flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm of the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Don't miss what's happening here. Many of you are old enough to remember using Windows 95, Windows 2000 on the computers when computers became a big part, a major part of our lives. And it began, I, I remember being in my room working on school projects on a, a Windows 2000, I guess, Dell computer, and it was really bogging down, and I got to the point where it had what I call the blue screen of death. Anyone been there? There is no coming back. Control, alt, delete all you want. You push escape. You've tried everything. And you realize your only real choice is to reach down to the wall and just unplug it. It's like, hey, I, I have nothing left that can fix this. I'm going to just unplug the whole thing, plug it back up. It's gonna, I don't even know what it's going to say when it starts over. It's going to have something on there. I hope that all that I've done is still there. I hope that it still works at all. But this is the only option I have. I have to do a hard reboot. And this is what we have here up until this point in the story. The Lord has justly wiped out all of humanity and all of the animals save those that are in the ark and has re 
started creation very much in the same way that he did from the beginning. He breathed onto the waters and dry land separated. Plants grew up. Birds went forth. All living things came out of the ark. Mankind steps onto onto the earth. So in this restart, if you're reading this for the first time, you have to be thinking, this is great. This is fantastic. We've gotten to the point to where we're going to fix this. We got rid of all the evil. We blotted it out. So verse 20, it's a a little different than the original creation and a little hint to us, a note to us that sin is still around. But even still, you have a guy who's being obedient to God. Verse 20, Noah then built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. Remember, the Lord provided those for him. And offered a burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There's some hope here. He's not going to have to do this again. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, don't miss this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Does this sound familiar? The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish in the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. This is a little bit of a transition from the original creation, but the command is very similar. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth. You shall not eat flesh with its, with its life, that is, its blood. And for your bl- lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you see these themes repeating from Genesis 1, from the story of creation, from 127, where you're to be fruitful and multiply, and 128, where you have dominion over everything, and he gives food. 129, when you're made in his own image, all repeating here with these little insertions that have to do with sin being present at this time. He repeats in verse 7, And you be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. And then he's going to make a promise. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the livestock, every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish a covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of my covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is to be seen in the clouds. It will remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of my covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And that is where... I have mostly heard sermons on this text end. 
That is where the story has ended for most of us as we know it. It was an awful flood. God gave so much grace to bring Noah and his family through it. He promised to never do it again. It was a great restart, and there was a rainbow. Rainbows and butterflies, literally the ending. It's a happy ending, but the next verse doesn't start with, these are the generations of. So we know this is not the ending of the story of Noah. This is not where the narrative ends, but what we have here is what we like. It's a nice and neat story because there was a problem and God got rid of the problem, seemingly. Sin was a huge problem in the last text that we read. And then there's this guy and the guy is obedient, very obedient. And then he does all the stuff Adam does. He does it right. He gets the same commission. He gets a promise from God. And it's all good. When we get here, we believe it's all good. I shared this morning about a tree. I actually learned something about this tree. I have a few trees on my property. I don't know the type of tree, but they drop these things called uh, horse apples or hedge apples. Maybe some of you experienced them. I shared this morning and said that they're completely useless. I was corrected. They actually uh, are used, apparently spiders don't like them. So they're used to keep spiders away, which is great news. That is fantastic news for me. I may not get rid of them so quickly as I have before because I'm deathly afraid of spiders. However, I have these trees on my property. They drop these green apple-like, mostly useless things onto the ground, lots of them by the millions. And my dogs are Labradors who are taught to pick up tennis balls or things like them. And they carry them around and they chew them up and they make the dogs sick. And they just bring them everywhere and they make a mess and they'll leave them in the parking lot and the next day the sun will like melt these. This is gross. They're gross and they're all over. So Chris one day who works for me was like, I reckon I need to pick up all those horse apples. And I was like, that would be very great, Chris, if you did that. So he drives a tractor out, flips the bucket up, fills it up three or four times. And takes the horse apples to the back of the property, dumps them in the woods, where we'll probably in the future have hundreds of horse apple trees. So Chris does this, and it was on a Friday. I'll never forget like the pride Chris had when I pulled up Friday afternoon from carpool, and he's kind of just looking out there. He's mowed under the tree, you know, and it was like, hadn't been that way in weeks, and I was like, man, you picked them all up. He was like, yeah, it took me like three hours, and they're all gone, and it was pristine, I'll also never forget Chris driving back Monday morning, coming down the driveway. And he's just driving in, and he looks over, and he sees out there hundreds of horse apples on the ground. And he gets out of his truck, and he walks over, and he looks. And I was like, this, I, how could there be this many? They keep coming down. So he goes out, and he picks them all up again. It's totally clean. Thursday, a client comes, gets out of his truck, and he goes, man, what are all those things? Chris is like, I reckon I'm going to be picking those up the rest of my life. Every time he picks them up, he points out to me, look how good it looks out there. It's just smooth. Dogs aren't carrying them in the kennels. No one's getting sick. But they just keep on coming. Just when you think you've cleaned all of it up, it just keeps on falling. You get to the end of this story, and you think, man, we got rid of everything. This is what I think we long for so much in our society. We're such a, a fix-it society. When it comes to sin, we often think, if I could just get, we have this list, if I could get rid of this stuff, I would stop. If I could remove this from my life, and, and sometimes those are actually valiant efforts. We need to be fighting sin in our lives, right? And the Spirit empowers us to do that. But we think that that is the solution. 
The solution is get rid of this. The solution is don't be that. If I could just take this and get it out of here, this is causing me to sin. This is the problem. We identify lists of problems. We can go to Christian bookstores and get a myriad of books on how to fix those problems, how to make our life better. That has crept into the Christian narrative. It is certainly the American narrative where Matthew shared we are so performance-rated. Everything is about how we can do better, earn better, make better, be better. And oftentimes, we as a people are prone to look at all the things around us and say, if that didn't mess with me, I could do this. If you didn't treat me that way, if you weren't talking to me, if you didn't make me feel like this, it would be better. And we have the situation where God has removed everything that Noah could be blaming the sin on. You don't like that guy over there? Well, we got rid of him. You don't like these animals? You don't like this community? You don't like that city? We got rid of it. It's all gone. All the things that were giving you trouble, I've just got you and your loved ones and animals so we can keep this thing going, and I'm giving you the freshest of fresh starts. I have rebooted creation, and I think if you're reading this for the first time, You've got to at least have some sort of suspicion that Noah is the guy. Noah's the guy. He's the seed of Eve. He's going to kind of cement this here at the end of the story and, and just show us how much we really should think of Noah as this new Adam, this new Adam that has come. Verse 18, the part that we don't normally talk about. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, the people of the earth, the whole earth, were dispersed. So those are all your great-great-great-granddads. Lots of greats. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. The Hebrew word here is Eli Adam Ish. Man of the soil, husbander, a garden worker. The root word is Adam. It literally says he began to be an Adam garden worker. He was a little Adam. Same job, working his garden. Look how long he makes it. A little bitty space in your font there. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. That's a weird response. If your 600-year-old dad is lying naked in the tent and you see him, you just keep walking. You know, just don't say anything. I'm not going. But he tells his brothers. That's a very strange response. This part doesn't go on the nursery walls. His brothers respond as I would expect. Shem and Japheth took a garment, they they laid it both on their shoulders and walked backwards to cover the nakedness of their father, right? I mean, we can laugh. This is a weird story. That's what I do. Like, all right, listen, we got a plan here. Don't look. They go back. They they cover their faces, were turned backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke up, when he awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Man, he curses his grandson for the sins of his father against him. That's a weird ending. We've got all our hope in this guy now. He is the new Adam. He's working a garden, 
just like Adam did. He's got the promise. He's got the promise that God's not going to ever do this again. He's got the commission that Adam had. And there's a lot that we could go into this whole passage of what is the sin here? Is it the drunkenness? Is it what, what is it? But we need to know one really simple thing. This guy becomes Adam. He sins from the fruit of his garden, and the result is he is naked and ashamed. It's the same thing. You're put in a garden, you're given a job, and the very next thing you do is disobey the Lord, and the result is that you are found naked and ashamed, and what follows immediately is a curse. Man, can you imagine reading this for the first time, and you're like, this is the guy! And you get to this, and you're like, no! No, you... Like, we blotted out everyone! We got rid of all the things that were bad in the world, except the creepy things that creeped on the earth. They're obviously there. It was mentioned a lot of times. We started all the way over. You had the promise. You had the job. And I go back, and I'm like, wait a second. You were a righteous man, blameless, walked with God. You obeyed God. Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Noah did all the Lord commanded him. What gives? At the end of this story, you're naked and ashamed and cursing people. So he blesses the two brothers that handled it properly. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The end of the story, the true ending of the generations of Noah here after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And chapter 10 starts with these are the generations of, and we move on. What a letdown. The result of the fall that we read about that was so devastating was death. Now, they didn't die when they left the garden, but they did surely die. And the goal has been to undo that death through the seed of Eve. And we have this guy who has all the right stuff going for him. And God gets rid of all the junk that could cause him to stumble. And we think to ourselves, this is the guy for sure. And the end of the story, just like all those before him and all those after him, he died. That's it. That's the end. Nothing. He, he's gone. Man. That is not how you should probably have seen the story going, but we know the ending of the story, and we know that no matter how many times we drive out in the field and pick up the horse apples, it doesn't matter because the tree is still there. We understand that no matter what all God got rid of outside of the boat, because Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives got on the boat, sin entered the boat. We knew it from the beginning because he gave them clean animals for sacrifice. We know it from the promise because he has to make a commitment to what happens when men murder one another because that was the second sin that comes in the beginning. And we know that unlike Noah, I mean, look, this is, a, this is a pattern that's going to continue for the rest of the scriptures. God is going to find someone to carry about, to be someone, to champion his name, to lead his people. He's going to give them commandments. They're going to be God's chosen person, and they are going to fail miserably. And God's people are going to suffer consequences because of that, and he's going to start over with someone new. Time and time. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, this is just what happens. Time and time and time and time and time again. And Israel continuously looks at these people and is like, you're the one. You're the one. 
until one shows up. And John the Baptist goes out and declares, this is the one. And we don't have time to go through the whole story of Jesus, but there's so many parallels of him being the new Adam, of him being the one that receives the promise of God, of him being the one who is obedient. And I just want to go to one of those in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, when Jesus, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, which is, guess what? A garden. So he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you know the story. His disciples fall asleep. He asks them to watch with him one more time. He goes back into the garden. He prays and he says in verse 42, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus is the Adam who found himself tempted in the garden and was fully obedient. Jesus is different than Adam and different than Noah and Moses and David and all those who came before him because Jesus is born of flesh, but he is fully God. Jesus walked in full obedience to the Father, and it's so important that we acknowledge that distinction. And then when we look to the Bible, when we look to around us, when we look to whatever it is for hope, we realize the only place that it can be found is in Christ. We can't just be caught picking up horse apples because they're going to come season after season after season and continue to fall. We have to cut down the tree. He has to give us a new heart. He has to take us through the floodwaters of sin and rescue us. He is the only one who can. And we get to the end of this story and we're so apt to be disappointed. I think that's the point. We have to look to something else. We have to look to something else. So the question is, what are you looking to to deliver you from sin? What are you looking to to help you with whatever it is that you're struggling with? And if the answer is anything other than Christ, it will fail you. He is the only thing, the only person who was able to be fully obedient, yet he was the one who died the punishment for sin, but he didn't stay dead, unlike every other story that ends in the Bible with he died. Jesus rose from the dead, and he offers us a new life, a life where we don't need to have clean animals and make sacrifices anymore, because he is the final sacrifice. So my challenge for us from this story is to think of it as more than just a nursery rhyme, more than just a sad deal that God had to blot out sin, but a reminder that even the deepest measures to deliver us from sin will fall short unless we look to Christ. We're going to sing together, and I'm going to pray for us before we do that we would do just that, that we would be a church that in the midst of chaos, confusion, frustrations, that we would be a church that in the midst of global pandemics, in the midst of all that goes on around us, and in the midst of our own sin that challenges us every day, we would be a church that looks to Jesus. Lord, thank you for this.